0: Well, I'm going to continue Terry's uh, disclaimer. So, you know, it's been a long day. No judgment if there's any nodding off; it's okay. <laughs> but I would like to thank everybody that has spoken earlier. It's been—I mean, I am full, and I don't know how your—if your heart is full, my heart is full. What we've heard today has just been amazing, and um, all I hope is that I can add to that in. What I heard today was the amazing transformation beyond comprehension that happens from the moment that I skidded on my face into these rooms to where I am today, and that's what I heard today, and I hope that you get that out of what I have to share tonight. My name is Kat P. from North Ridgeville, Ohio. Hi. Uh, My home group is Westlake Gratitude on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, and if you're ever in the area, please come see us. Um, I can, with one sentence, tell you why I qualify for Al-Anon. I can tell you my husband's recovery date is 122995, but I don't know mine. <laughs> so, I know it's January, but we go with January. I don't have it, so uh, so I always find that kind of funny. You know where my attention, you know where my <laughs> where my interest lied at the time. So, my background is I grew up in the city of Philadelphia. I am one of three girls born to very young parents. We lived in downtown Philadelphia in a home that was 10 by 10, three stories high. Three girls born in three years with a St. Bernard. It's a little tight. Um, I never saw alcohol in my house when I was growing up. My um, father had a violent alcoholic as a father. And he was very adamant that he was never going to drink. He never did drink. But his vice was gambling, and he was a workaholic. So in this 10-by-10 living room, which also included the kitchen, there was a round table, and at that round table were poker games. And those poker games were very exciting. My nose just came up over the table, and there would just be these exciting games happening very regularly. And I was so enthralled with it. But what I didn't know was that rent was in the middle of that table. Food was in the middle of that table. Anything that kind of represented a consistent, normal life was in the middle of that table. So what gambling does is one day you have a Mercedes and another day you have a bicycle. And that is true, that I had that experience. And... Uh, Most kids go to school And they're in school at some point And the teacher will say Well tell us what your mom and dad do And my dad's a policeman And my mom's an accountant I was told to say that my father was an entrepreneur Yes So uh, He started a lot of businesses They would start and fail And he was a workaholic He didn't he wasn 't around much, my mom was very good at acting as if she was raising us and doing things, and my father was really never much part of the picture. Uh, but something felt different within me. Something felt not the same. I would go to my friend 's house and other things just seemed very different and i couldn 't explain to you why. But I knew what was happening in my house didn't feel good, so I would want to be other places. I lied a lot when I was a kid. And one of the things that I learned in these rooms that lying was just giving wishful thinking a voice. I just wanted a different life. I wanted different circumstances. And I didn't know how to do that. Uh, I was afraid of who I was. I was uncomfortable in my own skin. So presenting a fantasy version of who I was was a lot more comfortable. I wasn't lying to hurt people. I was lying to protect myself, you know. Uh, When I was um, in sixth grade, we had gone on vacation. We had moved at this point to another house in Philadelphia. And my sisters and I were sent on vacation when... um, one summer with another family, and my parents were at home. And while we were gone, the FBI raided my father's business and subsequently seized our home and every the contents of it. So I was away on vacation, come home, and when I came home, uh, everything that I had was gone. My mom had thrown some clothes into a bag, and we moved in with my grandparents and uh, started in a new school. And my father headed to prison And my parents got a divorce. And now I'm in sixth grade, and this is what I tell myself. I said, this is an incredible opportunity to start over. I can be whoever I want to be because I'm going to be in a new school, and no one is going to know about this. No one is going to know what happened. And sometimes my sister might mention it or, you know, allude to it in conversations with friends, and I'd get so angry I'd get so angry uh, that she was showing our vulnerability, our weakness, our less than. And I wanted to be something different. So I worked very hard to present something very different. I headed off to college. You know, by the time I was in high school, our family was kind of falling apart a little bit. My father was out of prison. My sister went to live with him. I was living with my mom. My other sister was having a lot of issues, and she was living with grandparents and things. And so my mom and I were basically kind of like roommates in high school as I was ending high school. And she was off starting her own life professionally, personally, and I was just kind of left flapping in the wind. And when children are... And I was making a lot of decisions that children shouldn't make, and I felt very mature. I thought I was a very mature person. But when children are asked to make decisions that are designed for adults to make, it doesn't make them mature. It just makes them children who are making decisions that adults should be making. But I thought I was very mature, and so I headed off to college, thinking I was very mature, yet I was very immature. And when I got out on my own, it became obvious very fast, and I didn't last long. I started dating a guy who was very nice, and he was very normal. (laughs) He might still be in therapy. I'm telling you. (laughs) Twisted that poor guy in knots. So, uh, but from across a crowded bar. And I want to tell you, the story I want to tell you is that he came and clubbed me over the head and drugged me back to his alcoholic lair. But that is not the truth. The truth is, I stood in the corner and said, pick me, pick me. I can make it better. I can make it better. I can fix it. And uh, there was just something about him that was just felt right. There was something that clicked. And one of the things that really attracted to me to him was he came from a house, you know, with two parents, and they lived in the same house his entire life. And I thought, wow, I wanted that. I, that's what I wanted. And so we got married and had a baby, not in that order, and uh, we were off to the races. So he was um, having trouble, he had his MBA, but he was having trouble finding a job, so I had to fix that in a hurry. So I got him to work at my father's new business. And um, yeah, he was out, and now he had a company that had probably 400 and some employees, so it's good enough. So my husband was the guy that opened the door when the FBI walked back in again. And I was nine months pregnant at this point. No insurance, you know, at uh, this was bad. And so with number two coming along, and uh, we, he ended up finding a job in Ohio, and we packed up, and we headed to Ohio. Now, the one thing that, that happens uh, with alcoholism Is the, you know, kind of in science, the bacteria grows in a warm, moist place. The warm, moist place for alcoholism is an isolation and diminishment. Isolating people away from what they know and love and support and diminishing of your value. And when we moved out of Philadelphia and moved to Cleveland where we knew no one, we lost that safety net of family and friends. We lost that safety net of people in the community that we felt some responsibility to and we were on our own. And we put the gas, you know, we, the pedal to the metal on alcoholism. Now, I could not have told you it was alcoholism. I thought it was incredible quantities of bad luck. If we just get, this, get past this, then things will be okay. If we just get past that, then things will be okay. But uh, it was a lot... Uh, we continued to isolate and isolate and shrink and get smaller and smaller. Uh, I can tell you things started to happen to me personally in moments that I can remember the way that I felt. I had the kids at the movie The Lion King, and if you aren't familiar with The Lion King, you know, the, the kid lion, daddy dies, he feels responsible, he runs away. And his father's up in the sky and looks down to him. And he says to him, you are more than what you have become. And I sat in that movie theater just bawling. I was more than what I had become. And I had no idea what to do about it. No idea. But it was the first crack. It was the first thing that told, told me something is just not right here. I can remember sitting on my living room floor, and I had this visualization of, you know, Terry earlier had this, that granite stone that was inside him. Mine was these black, mossy castle walls with raging black water inside them. This was my visual. And this was my insides. And I thought to myself at that moment, I thought, I need help. I need a psychiatrist. I I need some, I, I need help. And then my, then my next thought was, where do I even start? Where do I even start to take down that wall? And I didn't think that I could physically survive that. I didn't think it was physically possible to break down that wall. So I just shut it down harder. I learned that 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 wall, that black raging water was fear and despair and loneliness and being overly brave and shame. So much shame raging inside there. Um, Physical things happening. I had TMJ. My jaw was locking. It was getting down back into my neck. I mean, I'm in my 20s. I had eczema that was breaking out on my hands and on my arms. Um, I, I... Years started to go by before I'd get a haircut. Things like this were happening. I can remember driving on a highway at one point and looking at that big cement V-shaped piece between the exit and the bridge, and I thought I could just take that clean straight on. I just couldn't imagine feeling like this. I mean, I'm in my 20s. This is a long way to go and to continue to feel like that. And I didn't know what to do about it. So I just tried to lock it down that much harder. Uh, I got really serious. Nothing was funny. I remember going to the movies and hearing everybody laughing and thinking, I mean, yeah, it's funny, but it's just not that funny. And um, the noise in my head... You know, I like to call them the ladies in the attic or anything, you know, the committee meeting or any of that kind of, but the noise was so, I couldn't be in the car without music on because they would get so loud, so loud. And they're mean. They are mean. One time my husband said to me after he was sober, he said, there is nothing that you could have ever said to me that I didn't say to myself worse. And that's what was happening inside my head too. So, um... So it kept going. So as the alcoholism was getting worse, we had some DUIs start to happen. DUI number one, DUI number two. After DUI number two, his attorney says to him, you know, we get DUI number three, you're going to jail. There is nothing that I can do about it. And I thought, well, what else do you need to hear? You know, that should do it. (laughs) And so, and I don't know about you, but when something's going down, I knew it and i will be ever grateful you know the hindsight of that moment when this happened the grace of how this all transpired blows my mind but my kids were at a sitter's there was an overnight school function that i was i tried to call home this was back in the day landlines i tried to call home and it was about 12 1 in the morning no answer that knot just twisted tight i knew i knew it was over and I got home that morning, the kids were still at the sitter, and I walked in, and my husband was sitting on the couch on the phone, and he was crying, and the car was not in the driveway. And I, I really didn't care. I said, Where is the car? And he didn't answer me, and he's on the phone, and I said, Who are you on the phone with? And he said, My dad. Now, I can tell you at that moment, I knew at that moment that he had been arrested. I knew that there was another DUI. I didn't need any more information than that. But at that moment when I should have been absolutely distraught, because I knew what this meant, it was as if a 50-pound sack had been lifted off my back, because it was no longer a secret. Now, a year earlier than that, my father-in-law had gotten himself into his own program of AA, and my mother-in-law had gotten him to Illinois. But, you know, poor them. We don't have time for that. We've got enough things going on in our own world. We weren't even paying attention. They were down in Florida. And he had called his dad, and his dad said, you need to call the central office. He called the central office, and he got on the phone with the central office. Now, what I did in that moment, which normally would have been explain a lot of things to him, I got quiet. I got quiet. I turned around, and I went up to bed. Now, I don't know about you. When you're super stressed, you might not eat and not sleep. I eat and sleep, and you probably look better in your dress, but I eat and sleep. So I took myself straight up to bed, and I pulled the covers over my head, and I went to sleep because it was the only thing I could do in that moment. And he came and he got me and asked me to drive him to treatment, and I did. And by the grace of God, he's been sober to this day. Uh, The, it was, um, so while he was in treatment, they have these family sessions that you go to. So you go to these family sessions, and they had two parts to the family session. So part one was explaining the disease of alcoholism. And the other part was a group session. So I got into the session where they're explaining the family disease of alcoholism. Oh, my God. It was amazing. It was amazing. For the first time in my life, I made sense. I made sense. They had these cool little mobiles with all the little people. You know, here's your enablers, and here's your alcoholic, and all the whole, the whole thing. But I made sense. I wasn't this crazed anomaly just dropped on the planet like a joke. Suddenly, there was something to describe my life and what I was experiencing. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. It was exactly what I needed to hear, that there was something that made sense here. And then we got over into the group discussion part, and uh, I would sit there and just bawl my eyes out. Just bawling. And... You know, you could see the different family members sitting around a circle, and some of them were just, they're pissed, you know, and I'm crying. And what I learned is when you come into these rooms, you come in either hurt or angry, and you find the other one when you're here. But I was hurt. I was hurt. And so the counselor said, he said, I want you to go home, and next week when you come back, I want you to write why you think you're crying. Okay. So I go home, and I have the week and the kids, and we, um, I got them that night before going into the family session. They're in the balls at McDonald's, and I'm like, shoot, I need to do my homework. So I pull out a piece of paper, and I jot down super fast, like, oh, why am I crying? Blah, blah, blah. And I close the book, and I get the kids to the sitter, and I go in to the family session. I could not tell you what I wrote. What I learned later is that was God working through my pen. But So we get into the family session, blah, blah, blah. Have you done your homework? Yes. So I open up that book, and what I read was that despite everything I've tried, despite everything I've done, my kids are about to experience their dad going to prison just like I did. It was like a truck had driven through my chest. I had failed. I had one job. I would given myself one job. To make my kids' life different than mine. And I was right back where I started. My oldest was in sixth grade, the same exact year I was when my dad was carted off to jail. It was incredible. I took my first step right in that moment. That moment told me how powerless I was over this disease, this family disease of alcoholism. Because I had nothing left. I had thought of everything possible to make our lives different, and I failed. There was not a committee that I wasn't on. There wasn't a PTA function. There was not a bake sale I was a part of, and I failed. I failed. My kids looked up into the stands, and we were there in every single game, and yet we were still in that same spot. Same spot. So... um, the counselor looked at me and said, "I think you should try Al-Anon." And uh, there was—I was willing. So I walked in these doors, and you had me at hello. I couldn't believe it. You know, when I walked into these doors, I was in the middle of a marriage that was—you know—we had secrecy and financial dishonesty and infidelity, and that was my part. That was my part. He just drank. He was only drinking. I never came in feeling like a victim. I felt like a perpetrator. I had stuff to do. I had work to do. Um, I couldn't, you know, once I stepped inside these rooms, uh, there were other things. It was the miracles were like a water cannon in my face. It was what I needed to experience to consistently remind me that I was in the right place and I was on the right path, and this was the answer. It was one after the other after the other. One of my gals here likes to say my heart was cracked open. It was cr- broken open. Um, you know, my my mother called me and said, uh, you know, I'd like to pay for something that you can do for yourself. I don't know where this came from. I said, I'd like to take a pottery class. And uh, that pottery class was like, it, it was such a refuge. I would... would You know, once a week I'd go there, I'd get there early, and I was two hours just working in clay, and uh, it was amazing. My in-laws called and said, we can't come up there and rescue you, but we we can pay your house payment, and we'd like you to stay home and take care of the kids while our son's in prison. So I was given the gift of time with my kids, time to get into this program while my husband was tucked away safe. And... And I got a foothold. I got a foothold in these rooms. Uh, There are a couple funny things that happened. My daughter was in preschool at the time, and uh, so I get a call from the principal of the preschool, and she said, uh, so Taylor shared with us today that her dad was going to jail, and uh, we'd like to talk to you. Now, in my mind this is federal court I'm heading into I mean the shame oh god so I mean I was just a mess so I'm heading into because it's a church preschool and I'm pretty sure they're going to kick her out because they don't have your kind in church preschool (laughs) so I go there and uh at this point I've got a holster with tissues because I'm crying all the time um I go there and I go into the to the uh, principal's office, and she asked what had happened, and I shared what had happened, and she said, "Well, we would like to suspend Taylor's tuition for those four months. Why? Why? We're at our weakest. We're at our most vulnerable. We're at our worst. This is this is not how you treat someone. You." This is where I expect to be kicked while we're down. I couldn't believe it. The kindness that was shown to us when we were so vulnerable. Vulnerability was not an option for me. Um, our neighbor came by. I mean, the car was booted in the driveway. There was not too much secrecy happening at this point. <laughs> My husband's name was in the paper. I mean, it's the, the deal's done. Uh, he comes by. He's a fireman. He said, "Look, anything you need a toilet fixed? Anything? You just you just come by and you let me know, and I'll be over here in a second. I just thank you. Uh, it was it was just incredible. It was just thing after thing after thing. Uh, it just blew my mind. So I start coming to these rooms, and um, you start talking about things like higher power and the steps and. Uh, whoa, this is pretty heavy duty because um, if there was anything, anything that I was going to collect some good information and say, thanks, I'm out, it was when you told me who my higher power was supposed to be. That was going to be where it wasn't going to work for me. And the issue with that, i it was never the issue was that I didn't think a higher power existed. I didn't think that I deserved one or I had earned one. I thought higher powers were for the good kids. I thought it was like the prize at the bottom of the Cracker Jacks. They had done all their homework. They had been good. They got a higher power. What, what had gone right for me? What, what had shown me that there was a higher power working in my life? At that point, I had no, no evidence that I had earned that. Um, but you didn't. You didn't. You never did. What I got to do is I got to borrow yours. I got to hear yours. I got to hear you develop yours. Just one step ahead of me. And I got to slowly develop mine. I, it was about trust. What I learned is that a higher power is the concept of trust, just simple trust, and that I could begin to trust the group. I could walk, oh, I could trust the idea of just walking into a meeting. And walking out knowing I'm going to feel better. I could trust that. And then I could start to trust someone to talk to. That I wouldn't be judged. And I could trust that all, all of me belongs in here. And it's so important when we share. You know, it took a long time before I heard somebody else talk about prison. And I thought, well, maybe that part doesn't count. You know, it's just just about relating to the alcoholic, and maybe these consequences don't count. And then someone else mentioned prison, so that counts too. I'm, you know, I take it as a responsibility that somebody, when I talk about that, somebody else is going to say, oh, that counts too. It, it covers everything. And as the longer I'm here, the more I recognize how it covers, what it covers, where it reaches, that pebble that just goes out and out and out. Uh, the steps, <laughs> they sounded good and scary, you know. Uh, there were things that I felt very confident that I could work a decent program and not work some of these steps. I had an excellent plan. And, um, but, you know, you keep coming back, and they just seem a little bit more approachable and a little bit more approachable. And it's just a matter of keep coming back. Uh, you know, I, the vocabulary starts to change, um, you know, recognizing the strength in powerlessness. I used to think of the word powerlessness as weak, weakness, and um, and I could start to recognize the strength that comes from uh, not having all the answers, needing to trust something else. That fourth step, the nature of my wrongs, the idea that I'd have to sit there and and um, just. Self deprecate on some level, but that just the name my sponsor likes to say it comes down to a couple simple fears quite often that motivates a large collection of bad choices. And I recognize that I'm desperately afraid that I'm not enough and I need your approval, and uh, quite often I've got some perfectionist issues happening at the same time. I also discovered that the assets, you know, that's a very important part of that fourth step, recognizing our assets. I call assets a resentment preventer, a resentment preventer, because when I learn what my assets are, I stop expecting it out of you. I learn it's not a baseline human characteristic, but it's a talent that I've been given, and I can use that talent, and I can recognize that talent, and I can maximize it for myself and for in use of service. But I stop expecting you to have that same talent. You know, if, if I'm good at math, I can share my math skills in a healthy way, but I cannot expect you to be just as good at math. And that's really important. It's very important. And when I work with, uh, work with other people, it's very important to focus on those assets, to understand uh, what they've been given and to u- how to use those. Uh, going through the, the freedom that comes in that fifth step. First time I did a fourth step, stuff didn't make it in there. There was stuff that I consciously left out. I wasn't capable at that time of doing it, but my sponsor said, I don't care. I want you to do it and put as much as you can. It doesn't have to be perfect. And there was stuff that I knew was going to be on a later one, and it was the best I could do at the time. Moving through step six and seven, which I love. I love that quietness. I love that lack of like i love that lack of control now that this is not for me to fix it's not my timing uh the 10th step the eighth ninth 10th step i said i don't wait for the end of the day i call them 10th step markers that i put into my world uh we have a job that i had we had a management team from many different types of departments that met every morning and i have a lot of good ideas and uh, often I would offer those good ideas, and they didn't ask. And you wonder why somebody didn't like you. And uh, what I learned is that to mind my own business. And so every day when I walk back to my office, I would ask myself, was I appropriate in this meeting today? Instead of waiting to the end of the day, I put that marker because I recognized that part of me That wants to share so desperately good ideas. And use that did they ask. That did they ask thing is very important. Um, My calendar, I like to say yes because you will like me. And I have to say often when I'm asked to do something, let me check my calendar and get back to you. I might know the answer is yes, or I might know the answer is no, but I'm giving myself the dignity of the time and space to feel good and feel okay with making that decision because it's the best decision for me. These are what I call 10-step markers, some of them that I put in my world. With awareness comes responsibility. Dang, you learn this stuff about yourself, you learn these things in this program, and shoot, things like sarcasm become no more fun. But... (laughs) Sarcasm was a tool that I could whip out so fast and be like Zorro across your chest. You wouldn't even know what happened to you. Just standing there, your clothes in shreds. There's a page encouraged to change that talks about sarcasm as a tearing of the flesh. You know, I came from a family where dark humor, put-downs was a way of communicating, and I had to work very hard to let go of sarcasm. There's a difference. You can be witty, that's character asset. Sarcasm is cruel. It's hurtful. Um, gossip, criticism. It's sometimes it can be lonely when you know people are hanging around the water cooler at work. And the right thing to do is keep walking. And um, I have to work hard at that. One of the most important concepts for me personally in these rooms is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Um, self-forgiveness. Forgiveness, forgiveness, I have to forgive the universe for giving me parents that are really not capable of nurturing. But I come into these rooms and I get nurturing and love beyond my wildest dreams. Um, Forgiveness of myself. I cannot... Progress or grow in this program without self-forgiveness. Self-forgiveness is understanding that I was doing the best that I could at the time with what I had. I have to forgive this person who got up a DUI number two in the middle of the night, left kids sleeping in bed, and went and bailed out my husband out of jail. I would have argued with you that at that time. I had no other choice. Who would we call? No one could know. I had to forgive this person who, when I heard my husband talking to my mother in law uh, and saying, Oh, we're only having two kids, and I'd found out the day before that I was pregnant, and I quietly, the next week, went and terminated that pregnancy because that was the easier solution. To me at the time, that was easier. I have to forgive the person that um, the only physical altercation that I've been in in my entire life was when my sister was being sexually assaulted. Uh, We were young teenagers, and I put that man through a bathroom door and took the hinges off the door. I was that angry. I I mean, it was visceral. But when it came to my turn, I just laid there and took it. I can fight for you, but I can't lift a finger for me. In our How Alan works on page 86, oops, sorry. There is a little passage here that I love about forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is no favor. We do it for no one but ourselves. We simply pay too high a price when we refuse to forgive. Lingering resentments are like Acid eating away at us. Rehearsing and re-rehearsing old injuries robs us of all that is precious. Shame never liberated a single spirit. And self-righteousness never softened a heart. Can we afford to perpetuate such self-destructiveness? Surely we can make better use of our time and energy. Although we may despise what others have done... If we keep in mind that everything we are now trying to do has the goal of healing us, we are bound to decide that the best thing we can do for ourselves is to forgive. I I never was entitled to judge those around me or judge my family members. That is not forgiving, absolving them of what they've done or haven't done. Forgiving them is just recognizing our common humanity. It's just recognizing that they're another flawed human just like I am. That is forgiveness. How I choose to spend my time and who I choose to spend it with, that's my choice. But forgiveness is just that recognition that we're just two flawed humans on this planet. Uh, These steps, traditions, concepts, they have removed the shame stinger from my life. You know, this is now just my story. It's just my story. It's what got me here, and I'd have no, I I would rather be no other place than I am here and here today with you. Uh, Some other very important concepts to me are balance. You know, we have all these words we throw out, like balance. I want balance in my life. What does balance mean? You know, there's so many aspects to balance time balance. How am I spending my time? God, it used to be, I'll get everybody else put together and right, and then we'll take care of cat. right? Got to get everybody else fixed, and then me. How am I balancing my time? My spiritual balance. What is mine and what isn't mine? Using that serenity prayer like a checklist. My, my part's pretty small when it comes down to it. Um, that connection, that spiritual balance, staying connected. Relationship balance, walking alongside people. You know, I existed in two places in relationships. I was either self righteous or desperately needing your approval. So I was either above you or below you. I didn't know how to walk alongside you. You know, um, healthy tolerance, the concept of healthy tolerance in a relationship. You know, um, emotional balance. You know, it was either I was numb, numb, or I had crippling fear. I had no skill set, no skill set, to feel my feelings, to deal with feelings. There's on page two sixty-eight in from survival to recovery. It says we will come to know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. Vastness of my emotions. We uh, raising our kids. This program was. Priceless. You know, these steps and traditions and raising our kids. Uh, we were very open about our programs, the things that we like to explain to our kids about the, their DNA. You know, all children, all teenagers have bad choices available to them, regardless of, uh, you know, it's just these guns laying around for self harm. But we explained to our kids that their guns are preloaded, preloaded and cocked. They get from here to there a lot faster. It's, it's in their DNA. Our oldest, you know, he's just wired tight. He was just tight. He'd seen a lot, and he was, he was just a tight kid. And we taught him halt. Halt was a very regular part of his youth. Are you hungry? Are you angry? We would use bored instead of lonely. Are you tired? And he, to this day, is 34 years old, uses it. I can, I can hear him use it as a checklist sometimes. I am hungry, and I'm tired. And we used to stop what we were doing. We would address those things, and then we would start homework. It was an excellent way to pause, address what he needed, and then, and then move forward. There's nothing worse with somebody who's hungry, angry, and tired trying to get him to do homework. It's a recipe for disaster. Our daughter, Taylor, is, um, is, has a lot of health issues. She's uh, a type 1 diabetic from when she was 5 years old. Uh, she's got other – uh, she collects autoimmune diseases. And um, we have to – she has a lot of bad luck, a lot of bad luck, uh, not just health-wise. We have to treat her health like it's alcoholism. Uh, you know, there are times she doesn't take very good good care of herself. There's consequences of that. Um, and a lot of those consequences uh, are almost like alcoholic consequences. And uh, that has been a challenge and something that this program has been very, very helpful for that we wouldn't have even realized we needed to apply there. There was a lot of struggles there, and I finally kind of... Connected the dots and said, "Wow, I got to look at this. I got to look at diabetes. You know, they tell you in the book: imagine alcoholism like diabetes. You know, they they have no control. They nobody wanted to have. They it's a disease. And uh, so I have to do the inverse, the reverse. I have to look at her diabetes and other diseases like alcoholism when she is not making good choices for herself. Her youngest son, Max." he was the best last kid. You know, he's just super snug. He just loved to crawl into your lap, and he's just super snuggly. Uh, even when he, you know he's getting bigger, he just he just loved to curl up. And, and but he was always just a little sad. There's just a, always this little sad edge to Max. And um, parents have a deep part. In your gut when it comes to your kids. But when you get that call, it hits a spot you didn't know existed. Um, We had gotten the call that Max was, uh, and I was asked to come, and Max was um, drunk, and he was bleeding by his own, harming himself, and he had taken a Sharpie marker. And he'd written all over his body those things we'd say to ourselves, like, I'm a loser, I'm worthless, and It was just all over him. God, it was awful. And, you know, I had to tell him, Max, this is bigger than you, this is bigger than me, um, we, we can't help you. You need help. And, you know, he hung around his parents long enough to know that there were the choices out there and he got help and he's really doing well. But one of the things when I hit that deep spot, it asked me to do some extra work in this program. It asked me to trust at a level that I hadn't been trusting before. And it asked me to trust his higher power. You know, I was always focusing on trusting my own higher power, but I needed to trust his higher power and I needed to be willing to accept any outcome, any outcome. I realized my outcome acceptance was a little narrower than i than the possibilities. Um, happy, joyous, and free. I love the theme of this conference. Oh my gosh, I mean, I mean, that is living, you know, like an active participant in my life is happy joyous and free. Just saying that just feels good. I mean, I, nothing, the the women that are now in my life, oh my God, I just, just the way that uh, from this program, I cannot, there are not words to describe the joy, the happiness, and the freedom that I have spending time with people in these rooms. I have the most amazing sponsor, I have the most amazing friends that we love each other, And we laugh. Oh my God, do we laugh? We laugh with each other, not at each other. I said the stupidest thing two days ago. I mean, they're still giggling about it in the car today. I mean, it's just, we laugh so hard. It is so freeing, so freeing. Um, You know, happiness is not when something and something and something is, when we get past this, when we get past that. Happiness is like is the willingness, to, the willingness to ask for what I want, not even what I need, what I want. That is happy. I mean, things that feed my soul, finding the things that give, that just make me happy, you know, rediscovering the things that I love to do, and then dragging them along with me. And uh, the joyous... Uh, In From Survival to Recovery, there's a line that says, To heal and claim the joy that can be ours, we need to see the world as it really is. It's life on life's terms. Joy isn't happening in my fantasy. Joy is happening in the real world. Joy is with and. I can be joyous and sad. I can be joyous and scared. I can be joyous and tired. I Joy exists as a baseline in there because I have you, the connection, this space, the, you know. Um, this joy exists because I am in the real world, not an illusion, not an oasis, the real world and all its grittiness. Uh, freedom, freedom, you know, that mental freedom from. Freedom from what other people think of me. Uh, Freedom, you know, my values are not up for negotiation. I can say no, I'm sorry, I can't, without justifying, rationalizing, giving you a PowerPoint presentation. Here, see my schedule? I can't do it because this and this and this and this are happening. You know, I used to have to sell you and make you agree with why I can't do something. Now, I'm just sorry I can't. You know, in my family, you know, when I would offer something, it was always considered the beginning of the negotiation. It's No, it's the end of the negotiation. Um, And uh, spiritual freedom, trusting that voice inside me, trusting that it's okay not knowing the answer. The ability to say, hmm, I don't know. That trust, that is spiritually freeing. Physical freedom. Ladies, I'm talking to you. Are we looking in the mirror and saying we're enough? We can bust our ass in here. We can do these steps. We can go to meetings. And then do we wake up in the morning and look at that mirror and say, I'm not enough? I know I do it enough. I have to stop. Physical freedom says, I am I can want things, I can want to be healthier, I can want more exercise, but I have to be okay today with what I've been given. I'm enough. You know, self-deprecation is not mutually exclusive. I can't just apply it to the way I'm looking today. It will creep in everywhere. Those ladies in the attic are just wait. There's a gallon in... A regular meeting that says, when you're inside there working on your program, your character defects are out in the parking lot doing push-ups. And <laughs> And that's what's happening. You know, when I'm standing in front of the mirror, my character defects are out there doing push-ups in the parking lot and uh, just waiting, just waiting. Uh, that freedom. but this program has given me a life. has given my family a life. It has given a new direction. Uh, I I am at a loss. I mean, I have a lot of words, but I am at a loss for words to express the depth of my gratitude for where I have come from to where I am today. I am uh, desperately excited about the future and what it holds and what I get to do and spend my time with. And I'm going to wrap us up today with the very last paragraph in the From Survival to Recovery. We in al are blessed with spiritually conscious, loving companionship on our human journey. We are gifted with life, all life, with its life with its laughter and its tears, its loneliness and its love, its wisdom and its idiocy, its justice and its cruelty its family disease of alcoholism, and its family recovery of Al-Anon. So today we say yes to life, and thank you, Al-Anon, for help with the courage and the tenderness to live it. Thank you, everyone.